Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with continued strikes by the US and UK against Houthi targets in Yemen and assess what impact they will have on the peace talks close to ending the civil war that was started by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in 2015, as well as whether this escalation will spark a wider war in the Middle East. Joining us is Shireen Al-Adimi, a professor of education at Michigan State University. Having lived through two civil wars in her country of birth, Yemen, she has played an active role in raising awareness about the US-supported Saudi-led war on Yemen since 2015. And through her work, she aims to encourage political action amongst fellow Americans to bring about an end to US intervention in Yemen. Then with Taiwan's pro-sovereignty DPP winning over the KMT in this weekend's election, which mainland China's government of Xi Jinping has called a choice between war and peace, we'll speak with Michael Swain, a senior research fellow and former director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program. He is one of the most prominent American scholars on Chinese security studies and previously worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. He's also advised the United States government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment. We will discuss his brief at Responsible Statecraft, Paths to Crisis and Conflict over Taiwan. Then finally, we will speak with Edward McCaffrey, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics and Political Science at the University of Southern California. He is the author of Fair Not Flat, How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of the People's Tax Page. We'll discuss Friday's announcement from the IRS that they have collected $520 million from rich tax cheats, thanks to increased enforcement funding from Biden's IRA. The extra money Mike Johnson and the House Republicans are now cutting in a deal to keep the government funded in a brazen display of Christian corruption. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Shireen Al-Adimi, who is a professor of education at Michigan State University. Having lived through two civil wars in her country of birth, Yemen, she has played an active role in raising awareness about the U.S.-supported Saudi-led war on Yemen since 2015. 
Through her work, she aims to encourage political action amongst fellow Americans to bring about an end to the U.S. intervention in Yemen. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shireen Aladimi. Thanks for having me. So, Shireen, the U.S. is back intervening. Peace talks have been underway, led by Saudi Arabia, which is something of an irony, given that in 2015, the then Saudi Defense Minister, Mohammed bin Salman, started a war against Yemen in order to prevent the rebel Houthis from taking over the country. Over 300,000 people have died in this war and has devastated the economy and led the UN to call Yemen the world's leading humanitarian disaster. And now, ironically, the Saudis are leading the peace negotiations, which were getting close to resolution before these Houthi attacks on shipping and the counterattacks by the U.S. and the U.K. And now, of course, Saudi Arabia has expressed concerns over these U.S.-led strikes against the Houthis, saying, while the kingdom stresses the importance of maintaining the security and stability of the Red Sea region, in which freedom of navigation is an international demand because it harms the interests of the entire world, it calls for restraint and avoiding escalation in light of the events the region is witnessing. So it's a little hypocritical, isn't it, that the Saudis are taking this position? Uh, Of course, definitely. It's hypocritical, but it also speaks to the disastrous uh, nature of the war that they began in 2015. They called it Operation Decisive Storm, if you you recall, and uh, predicted that it would be over within weeks. And instead, they were, by some estimates, spending $200 million a day fighting in Yemen and um, didn't really accomplish much of anything. The war lasted for, this is the ninth year now, with no... Uh, official peace treaties signed just yet, but they finally began negotiating in 2022 when they saw that the Houthis were able to attack some of their oil production facilities and they weren't making progress on the ground. Their puppet government was not successful. You know, they said the president aside that they were trying to reinstate and instead put together a a committee basically of a presidential committee of uh, folks that were loyal to the UAE and to Saudi Arabia. And um, at the end of the day, the most populous region in Yemen, North Yemen, where about 70 to 80 percent of the population resides, is controlled by the Houthis, who are now not just rebels, but they are the de facto government. So the Saudis then, how close are they to a deal? Because I was told uh, recently that what was restraining the U.S. and President Biden from retaliating against Houthi strikes against shipping was that they didn't want to derail these peace talks. So is that true? And how close were these talks to a peace deal? Uh, As far as I know, they're very close. And um, they had agreed on the major points. And uh, by, you know, again, this is not confirmed, but I heard that they were ready to sign in January. So this year, this month. Um, Now, the role of the U.S. has been interesting because there have also been reports by The Intercept and others that show that the U.S. was actually trying to derail the talks with the Saudis and trying to say that the Saudis shouldn't agree to certain demands that the Houthis put forth, whereas the Saudis themselves were willing to just agree to the demands and move forward. You know, Hamad bin Salman has a Vision 2030 plan, and he's been mired in this war for so long. It hasn't uh, been successful by any means for him, and so he's looking for a way out. 
uh, and yet the U.S. is thinking about its own interest in the region. Now, we've spoken about this many times, and we talked about the important strategic location of Yemen and uh, not having a government there loyal to the Saudis and loyal to the U.S., was the reason that they got involved in this war to begin with, to prevent potential attacks on shipping like we're seeing right now with the Houthis and Saudi in Yemen. But of course, that hasn't happened until the war in Gaza. The Saudi or the Houthis have been very clear about what ships that they're targeting and why, and have uh, stated in you know a goal of uh, or you know they've stated that they would end attacks on shipping. Um, attacks on vessels toward going toward Israel specifically when Israel lifts its blockade on Gaza and allows food and aid and water and medicine into the territory. And so um, I think it's interesting that the U.S. is now just coming to the defense of Israel, coming to the defense of capitalism, essentially, if you read the statement by President Biden in the White House um, and preventing any further attacks in their minds. I don't think this is going to prevent anything, to be honest, but they are not thinking about diplomacy and de-escalation um, with this as this recent wave of attacks show. And actually, as we're speaking right now, there are renewed attacks in the port city of Hadeda. But the Houthi attacks on shipping, while they say they're aimed at Israel or Israeli flagged ships or ships going to Israel, apparently a lot of the attacks have been on sh- on other ships so the, i don't know how they can discriminate between what ships carrying what and going where and whose flags it is because everybody has different flags of convenience from mm-hmm. from all kinds of obscure countries and my understanding is that the egyptians are not happy about what the houthis are doing because uh, they get revenue from ships that go through the suez canal and that traffic has been reduced substantially so how do the Houthis discriminate in terms of what ships they fire on? I don't think there's a great way for them to discriminate with precision. Um, I think their approaches are a bit crude. Um, the Egyptians are dissatisfied, but they've also said that a lot of other ships are still moving through Suez and that it's not a complete blockade. The Houthis are not imposing a complete blockade. I think there have been 27 attacks or so. Uh, and hundreds of ships are going through that every single week. And so um, it's not as precise, perhaps, um, but their stated goal was that they are attacking ships that are affiliated with Israel in some way or that are heading toward Israel. And it's also important to note that when there was a temporary ceasefire in Gaza, there were no attacks during that period on any ships in that region. Well, there's no doubt that the Houthis are supporting the people in Gaza and the Palestinians in general, and they've made that clear in the massive demonstrations in response to the U.S. and U.K. airstrikes. But Netanyahu's government doesn't even listen to Biden and Blinken, so they're not going to listen to the Houthis, right? They're not going to listen to the Houthis, of course. Um, And I think it's interesting that they continue to not listen to Biden and Blinken and yet expect the U.S. to continue to fund their wars. Um, and continue to support them materially and diplomatically, as we've seen with UN security resolutions. And so I think this is the crux of the issue here. The Biden government says that they're working toward de-escalation, that they don't want a loss of civilian lives, but they're not exerting any material pressure on their biggest ally, the Israelis, to actually prevent the um, immense humanitarian situation that they've created for the Palestinians. So no, I don't think that the 
Houthis are expecting Israel to listen to them. But, um, you know, we all know that the U.S. has an influential role to play if they wanted to play that role, just like they had an influential role to play with the Saudis. They chose not to um, leverage that influence and they chose to support the Saudis for the past seven, eight years. So, Shireen, let's talk about Iranian influence, because now when you hear reporting about uh, what's happening in Yemen, the Houthis are always referred to as the Iran-backed Houthis. Mm -hmm. Clearly, some of these sophisticated weapons like cruise and ballistic missiles are not produced in Yemen. So what is the role in terms of Iran and what is what Iran calls the axis of resistance? They, of course, have a positive relationship with Iran, as they do with um, Hezbollah and others in the region. But I think the association with Iran has always been overblown since the beginning of this war. I think we're seeing also just the consequences of underestimating the Houthis and, and their sovereignty and their independence. Um, they don't take orders from Iran. I think Iran has been very calculated in the way they've um, handled their geopolitical, you know, uh, interests and their interference. And the Houthis are not as calculated um, in their responses to ge geopolitical, you know, um, conflicts as we're seeing right now with Gaza. Of course, there's a lot to lose in Yemen. And uh, Yemen has been, you know, our healthcare has been decimated, the economy and so forth, like you mentioned, as a result of the past nine years of this Saudi-led war. But um, they don't take orders from Iran. They're an autonomous group. They have a positive relationship with them. And I think those who continue to um, overestimate this relationship between the Houthis and Iran are doing so either for nefarious reasons. You know, Iran has been, we've been conditioned to think about Iran as the U.S.'s largest enemy, you know. Um, but also it's just a complete misunderstanding of Yemeni politics and who the Houthis are and what they want and the vast support that they have within the Yemeni um, community, the Yemeni population inside of Yemen. Um, so, of course, there's there are ways that they could have acquired weapons, but we also have to remember that the country was under blockade for between 2015 and 2022. And there's still, they don't have complete freedom. People still have to get permission to travel. Um, somebody going even from South to North Yemen can't go through without permission from the Saudis. And so I think it's been overestimated how much Iran has really been supporting the Houthis. And we also don't, of course, hear the opposite, which is, you know, U.S.-backed Israel or uh, U.S.-backed Saudi Arabia, despite the immense ways that this, the U.S. has supported the Saudis and continues to support the Israelis. But uh, the Iran's government and the IRGC and the people in Iran that supports this government, which I don't believe are anything like a majority, after all this Iranian government cracked down on the women's protests brutally, they continually refer to the United States as the Great Satan. Friday prayers, you know, goes on like a broken record. And the Houthis now, angry at these attacks, are referring to the United States as a terrorist nation and also as the devil. So, rhetorically, at least, they seem to be on the same page, the Houthis and the uh, I'm, Iranians. I mean, for the Houthis and for any Yemeni to see the U.S. as an enemy, I think that is completely justified, given that all of the bombs that had been dropping on them for the past nine years have been made in the United States, Lockheed, you know, serial numbers or Raytheon or 
general dynamics, what have you, the Saudis weren't making their own bombs. They were using cluster munitions that they bought from the U.S. They were using uh, missiles and bombs that they were purchasing from the U.S. and dropping on Yemenis. So I think the anger that you see from Yemen toward the U.S. is not new. It's not because Iran is saying it. Iran has its own reasons for having its suspicion of the West. Uh, in Yemen, they've been blockaded and bombed and uh, uh, thrown into poverty and resorting to aid from the international community because of the U.S.'s full support, material support to the Saudis and the UAE. So I don't think that sentiment is unjustified and it's also not new. Well, I think you make a strong point, Shireen. I don't think you win France by bombing them. But yeah. what about the UN's activities there now, given that the United Nations Special Envoy to Yemen, Hans Grunberg, just arrived on Saturday, and he said he's urging maximum restraint by all parties involved in Yemen, and he's warned of an increasingly uncertain situation in the region, noting, quote, with serious concern, the increasingly precarious regional context and its adverse impact on peace efforts in Yemen and stability and security in the region. So what are the chances of some kind of continuation of the peace talks and a resolution here, or alternatively, a widening war in the Middle East? Uh, this is really a precarious time. Um, I think diplomacy and negotiation and dialogue is the best way to handle this conflict. Um, I think the U.S. resorting to airstrikes and the U.K. resorting to airstrikes in Yemen does the opposite of that. We've seen that Yemenis writ large and Houthis in particular don't, you know, just back down when they're being bombed. If anything, it strengthens their resolve. And um, I think the Biden's... It, the Biden administration and the Sunak administration's calculations here are very misguided. I do think that there's room for diplomacy and negotiation, and I hope that parties are willing to use the opportunity provided by the UN to sit down and negotiate a way out of this. Um, and I think most important here is the ceasefire in Palestine. Without a ceasefire in Palestine, I don't think the Houthis are going to stop their attacks, or actually maybe not even the ceasefire because they've been clear about the blockading aspect of this war. So the UN can continue to call for a ceasefire and lifting the blockade on Gaza on one front. And also, um, I hope that either the Americans or the British or the Houthis together could sit down and um, have some kind of resolution out of this rather than an escalation, because I don't think escalation and war, you know, it's not beneficial to anybody. I don't think people want that as an initial resort. But the Houthis are echoing Iran's position over Palestine, which is they want the Palestinians to control all of Palestine and somehow Israel to disappear. I mean, I think that the Arab populations for decades and decades have seen Palestinians as being occupied and um, occupied people have a right to their land back. And this is not a position, again, that's unique to the Houthis in Yemen or to Iran. Um, I think that's a popular sentiment with the case against Israel right now in the ICG, I think there's a lot to focus on, on the brutality of Israel. And people are seeing on their smartphones every single day what is happening to Palestinian people. And that just fuels those sentiments uh, even more. Is that the most practical solution? I don't think so. But it is the sentiment that's not uncommon. Right. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, even the United States can't seem to restrain Israel. So at this point, a ceasefire is not particularly likely as long as Netanyahu is in control, even though 
The latest polls in Israel have his popularity at about 15%. Right. Um, I think some polls also show that the war is more popular than Netanyahu is, so I'm not sure it's just a Netanyahu issue or if it's this is a, uh, a response that is supported by other Israelis and that is clearly not proportional to what happened in, on October 7th. Well, Shireen Aladimi, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Shireen Aladimi, who's a professor of education at Michigan State University. Having lived through two civil wars in her country of birth, Yemen, she has played an active role in raising awareness about the U.S.-supported Saudi-led war in Yemen since 2015. Through her work, she aims to encourage political action among fellow Americans to bring about an end to U.S. intervention in Yemen. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the results of the elections in Taiwan, which China has called a choice between war and peace. U.S. forces give the nod. It's a setback for your country. Bombs and trenches all in rows. still ask for more. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Swain, a senior research fellow and former director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. He also advises the U.S. government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment, and he has a brief at Responsible Statecraft, Paths to Crisis and Conflict Over Taiwan. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Swain. Thank you very much, Ian. Glad to be back again. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Chinese government, uh, Xi Jinping, have framed the Taiwanese election as a choice between war and peace. And he essentially putting the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, as a party of war and the Kuomintang, the KMT party, as a party of peace. Well, the party of war won. So does that mean war in China's eyes? Uh, I, no, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, the China has resorted to a lot of rather bombastic rhetoric in recent months um, to try to, I think, convey to the people of Taiwan how serious the stakes are in this in this situation. Um, but I think that sort of thing has really backfired. Uh, the Taiwan people are not responding to that kind of language, obviously. Um, although Lai Jingde has not won a majority of the Taiwan electorate support, he's gotten roughly 40% of the vote in, a, in an election where the, you know, the plurality winner wins the election. Um, and so 60% of the Taiwan people have not clearly indicated their support for him. So he doesn't have an overwhelming mandate. And Beijing should, I hope, recognize that fact. This is not like a, a monsoon or a, or, a, or a tidal wave, rather, 
in favor of the DPP in, in Taiwan. And of course, they've lost seats in the legislative council elections. So um, he will have difficulty ruling. Um, and he has, as a result of that, extended his hand in his acceptance speech to the other two parties saying, I will work with you as much as possible, adopt as many of your policies as I can, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he recognizes that he's not in a politically terribly strong position uh, within Taiwan. Of course, he did win the, win the presidency, so he has that bully, bully pulpit and he has that capability to move forward in, in certain areas. But um, I think he'll move cautiously um, at least initially. And um, I think Beijing should be, you know, responding in, in that way itself by exercising restraint, despite its more belligerent rhetoric. Um, I don't think it will serve its interests to really respond to Lai's election at this point in time with some kind of radical action of military pressure, intimidation, uh, etc. But we'll see. So, the Democratic Progressive Party, Lai's party, the DPP, received over 40% of the total votes. And Taiwan's opposition, Kuomintang KMT Party, garnered 33.5% of the votes. And then the Taiwan People Party, this new party, they, by a younger, more populist uh, candidate, they got 26.5%. And as you point out, it'll be a split government like we have here in the U.S. with the... DPP controlling the executive branch, but not having a majority in the legislative branch. So does that mean a kind of paralysis or is there some kind of compromise here? Well, I don't think, hopefully it doesn't mean paralysis. I think what it does mean is that hopefully the, the lie will have to, the DPP government will need to work with the other two parties to try to stabilize the situation across the strait as much as they can. I think he really needs to do that in order to focus on the many problems that Taiwan is dealing with and focusing on domestically. Uh, Taiwan has an array of different social economic issues that it has to deal with. It's not a crisis, but it's, it's a challenge. And the electorate is very focused on those issues. I, I don't think that this uh, presidential and the LY elections were all about China. They were also about the domestic situation um, on Taiwan, and the parties have to really be able to work together to address those issues effectively. Um, and at the same time, they need to work together to really redress their very, in the past, very weak, I think, response on the defense side to building up their capabilities uh, to caution, to deter Beijing. Uh, Taiwan has historically had real problems in being able to devote enough willpower and enough resources to build up its military capabilities to establish a credible deterrent, not necessarily a fully independent deterrent, because Taiwan unavoidably will continue to rely on the United States for at least part of that, but it needs to have a much more credible deterrent of its own as well. And um, the different party leaders have committed themselves to this, and hopefully they'll be able to work together more effectively in order to devote more resources to the, to the defense sector and build up their own uh, independent capabilities separate from the United States. 
Well, the United States put out a statement saying that uh, Washington is committed to maintaining cross-strait peace and stability. And on Saturday, President Joe Biden told reporters that the U.S., quote, does not support independence for Taiwan. And that's the red flag, isn't the very word independence. Well, sure. The United States needs to very clearly, unambiguously, and in my view, in a more credible fashion, convey its continued adherence to its one China policy. Because that policy, which has been in existence since the beginning of normalization and diplomatic relations with Beijing and through the democratization of Taiwan, that policy um, and Beijing's policy of seeking peaceful unification in its terms as a first priority, that understanding has been basic to peace across the Taiwan Strait for many, many decades. There's no alternative that I can see to that kind of an understanding between Beijing and Washington. The alternatives will throw us into very uncertain waters um, with the increased likelihood of crisis. And so what we need to do is really be very clear on affirming in a very credible way that A, the United States does not support Taiwan's unilateral move towards independence. B, the United States will maintain only unofficial relations with Taiwan, and that has been eroded through a variety of actions taken by different American politicians, administrations over the years, and and see Taiwan, the United States will not be treating Taiwan as a security ally like Japan or South Korea. Taiwan is not a formal security ally. The United States is not committed to defending Taiwan if attacked. The United States has a position of strategic ambiguity about that, which I think serves to reassure to some degree, at least Beijing, that that the United States is not committed to permanently separating Taiwan from the mainland. Um, And even though we do support Taiwan, wanting to defend Taiwan if necessary and possibly intervene, possibly intervene under certain conditions, et cetera, um, that's all been said as part of the Taiwan Relations Act. Nonetheless, we still maintain some distance from Taiwan and want the, the some variation of the status quo to continue. Um, but as I say, it's 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 eroded in recent years, and the Chinese have done things to erode this as well. Both sides need to recognize that they've contributed to this dangerous dynamic that's in place now, and they need to do things to correct it by establishing a more stable general relationship that allow for at least a modicum of trust on their statements about Taiwan so that each side doesn't have to base their policies on a worst case assumption. Oh, China's about to attack Taiwan or the United States is about to support Taiwan's independence. I mean, you can't just simply repeat in a rote fashion over and over again, the mantra that the US and China have been doing, well, we adhere to the one China policy and we don't support Taiwan independence. No, you've got to actually do things that show that credibly. You limit your level of contact um, to an unofficial level. You don't encourage forces on Taiwan that say things and do things that would move them more towards an independent position. And you uh, maintain your deterrence vis-a-vis Beijing while at the same time trying to elicit from Beijing its affirmation of its commitment to peaceful unification. 
needs to have more active efforts taken by both sides to revive this understanding. And we're currently just not doing that. We're just, as I say, we resorting to this just reflexive react restatements. The United States doesn't support one Taiwan independence. The United States supports the one China policy. But the actions being taken by the United States in some regard, in some areas, and by China, belie that belie that level of deep commitment to those original understandings. But Michael Swain, is the People's Republic of China led by Xi Jinping and Taiwan led by Mr. Lai and the DPP, which has just won its third consecutive presidential term, are they on different trajectories? After all, Xi Jinping has changed the very nature of Chinese foreign policy. You know, with the wolf warrior diplomacy, he's much more assertive. He's much more connected to the military. He's certainly not Deng Xiaoping. He's changed that trajectory altogether by making himself a, effectively like Putin, a leader for life. And then on the other side, in Taiwan, it would seem that after what happened in Hong Kong, the Taiwanese people don't really think that the one China, the one country, two policies flies anymore. Right. Because once the China takes over, democracy goes away, just as it is in Hong Kong. Well, of course, the, the, the two sides are not in convergence by any means. They are on different trajectories. Uh, the Taiwan public has become less and less, I don't want to use the word enamored, but less and less supportive of the idea of close relations with some kind of workable close relations with Beijing. It's been more suspicious of Beijing, etc., for reasons that you've just uh, discussed and just mentioned and others. And China has itself become more alarmed um, that, in fact, the United States and Taiwan are in some way working to preserve separation and even perhaps establish some level of or, or, or permanent separation over, over time, that the United States will no longer back its one China policy. So you have these deep suspicions and actions on both sides. Um, and as a result of that, the policies being taken are to double down on deterrence, double down on signaling resolve, um, Taiwan saying tough things towards the mainland, and we're a sovereign independent nation, and we've always been a sovereign independent nation, we're going to deal with Beijing on equality. We're not supportive of the 1992 consensus, which was the the understanding that had been reached under the Chinese Nationalist Party on Taiwan with Beijing. Tsai Ing-wen threw that out the window. Um, and, and so there, you know, there, there, there's movement, certainly, um, away from some basis for discussion, dialogue, etc., between between the two sides. Um, the United States tries in this process to keep what it regards as a even-handed and balanced kind of posture with support, strong support for Taiwan against the idea of Chinese coercion and deterrence, et cetera. But that is not proving to be a very productive policy. It's not averting this kind of growing divergence. It's not ending this growing divergence between between Beijing and and Taiwan. And I think that's what that's what needs to happen is there needs to be establish some basis for greater trust, I dare say, on the part of all three parties to be able to at least have a dialogue. But it's going to be very, very hard to do this. I mean, under Xi Jinping, you're right, he has, he continues to apply a version of the one country, two systems policy, 
uh, that was in effect for Hong Kong. Uh, they say it's going to be applied differently for, for Taiwan, but they still use that same nomenclature, that same term to describe what the relationship will be. And it's just completely unworkable in Taiwan. The Taiwan public have rejected this idea. So Beijing needs to come up with some other way of trying to address the problems that it has across the strait beyond you know, increasingly tough language and military saber rattling, et cetera. It has to be able, and just trying to use the economy to pull Taiwan closer. It has to be able to politically come up with some kind of a better way of talking about a future cross-strait relationship other than the one country, two systems, which is just not viable. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Michael, is Xi Jinping capable of pivoting away from his hardline trajectory? I mean, he's got economic problems, he's got massive use unemployment, and he he essentially is, I don't know whether he's boneheaded or, you know, headstrong or whatever the way to describe it is, but is he capable of being more pragmatic? On the issue of Taiwan... I don't think if you're talking about being more pragmatic as throwing out the one country, two systems um, idea, um, I think that's unlikely, even though there have been indications within by some Chinese who have indicated that within the Chinese system, there's a search for an alternative concept to that. Um, I don't know how credible that information is. Um, um, I don't know if even if it is underway, whether or not it's, it's succeeding in any sense. But um, I would hope that they're doing that. I hope that there are people in Taiwan who are thinking, uh, in the mainland, who are thinking like that. But in the meantime, I don't expect Xi Jinping to change his spots on this. What I think we can hope for is to have some kind of greater stabilization where he doesn't feel as if he has to keep pushing on the Chinese side to make progress, to ever make ever, ever, ever steady progress towards unification because if he keeps pressing in that regard, I don't think it's going to produce the kind of outcome he expects. It's going to simply alarm even more Taiwan and then pull Taiwan, and then the U.S. will act in various ways, or people in Congress will act to try to pull Taiwan ever closer to, 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 to Washington. That, in turn, will trigger the Chinese to become even more um, assertive in their efforts to try and stop that. And we're, and we're into an intensifying version of the dynamic that we're that we're seeing now. So there has to be a stabilization of that. I don't think Xi Jinping can change his spots on this, but I think he can adopt a more patient position about the Taiwan issue. There is no reason why he needs to try to force the Taiwan issue forward at this point in time. He would be much better off trying to establish a formula for creating some level of stability in this situation without discarding his ultimate goals, which he'll never do, and without necessarily embracing the DPP, which I don't think he can do either. He has to be able to establish some kind of a formula that will allow for greater stabilization, perhaps some degree of limited interaction with the DPP on a private level that stabilizes things and with the United States. But, you know, that's a fairly big ask, but we need to have an improvement in the overall relationship between China and the United States to make that kind of thing possible. And that's where the Taiwan issue, I mean, it's really, to a great extent, a reflection of the nature of the US-China relationship. And if we can't get the US-China relationship right and get it on a more stable footing, it's gonna be so much more difficult 
to do the kinds of things that Xi Jinping needs to do, the U.S. needs to do, Taiwan needs to do to stabilize it. So just in closing then, Michael, what should the U.S. be doing in terms of stabilizing the relationship between Beijing and Washington, given that there's talk on our side from a general saying war is inevitable, we don't have enough ships, their navy is bigger than ours, all this kind of Cold War nonsense. What's your sense of what we, sh- we should be doing on our side? Well, we should, I mean, there are many, many things the, the administration, I think, should be doing. Some of them it is doing, but not doing strongly enough and not doing extensively enough. It certainly needs to put a stop to the kind of loose talk that you hear from even some serving American military officers that basically tend to convey the idea that war over China is virtually inevitable, that, you know, they, they need to stop that. And I think they've tried to sort of put a limit on this, but they need to be very clear about it. And they need to be very clear with people in the Congress and, and, and convey very clearly what the dangers are here, that you don't go off, you know, loosely making comments about um, about wanting to have Taiwan recognize a sovereign independent nation, wanting to throw the one China policy out the window, etc. Those kinds of things, those kinds of statements, legislation passed in that direction, etc. All of those things simply increase the chance of us ending in a crisis because it will not deter the Chinese. It's not going to it's not going to make them give up and say, OK, well, Taiwan is just too much of a challenge for us. We're just going to back off and if Taiwan wants to become independent, that's fine. That's not going to happen. The Chinese will double down on their signals of resolve in response, in a tit-for-tat kind of a fashion. So the administration needs to be clear about the danger of doing that, getting into that, and be very clear. But, but you see, it can't do that right now under current conditions because we're in this presidential election campaign. And there is this bipartisan belief that we need to be tough towards China, that China is a major threat to the United States, and therefore, you be, it becomes a political liability for any politician to start talking about the need to have credible reassurances all around and to start doing things that really put limits on our level of support for Taiwan, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, people aren't going to start doing that because it looks like we're appeasing the Chinese. Uh, so it's in a, we're in a very difficult political climate right now to be able to do the kinds of things that I think the administration needs to do. And then there's a whole slew of things it needs to do just in terms of its direct relations with Beijing. It needs to be more interactive with them on cooperating on different issues, and it needs to develop a more credible crisis management set of mechanisms for dealing with a crisis should it occur. We're not doing that right now. We have allowed for that dialogue, which had existed to lapse between the US and China, the Chinese and American militaries. We need to revive that crisis management discussion, and we need to expand it in order to make sure that we don't end up, if we do end up in a crisis, we can manage it effectively, or if we can avert a crisis, hopefully. Well, Marcus Wayne, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Very welcome. Thank you, Ian. We're going to take a brief station break, back looking into how the IRS just collected $520 million from rich tax cheats, thanks to increased enforcement funding from Biden's IRA. The money Mike Johnson in the House Republicans are now cutting in a deal to keep the government funded in a brazen display of Christian corruption.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Edward McCaffrey, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics, and Political Science at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Fair Not Flat, How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of the People's Tax Page. Welcome to Background Briefing, Edward McCaffrey. Great to be here, Ian, as always. So, Ed, on Friday, we learned from the IRS that they've collected more than $520 million from wealthy tax dodgers since 2022. But now House Speaker Mike Johnson, basically, he's going to cut $20 billion from this increased IRS enforcement, $20 billion, which is about a quarter of the $80 billion that they got through the Inflation Reduction Act. And on top of that, the $20 billion in IRS cuts has been front-loaded to 2024 in the deal that was just made to keep the government open. So there's no question that this is the top priority for Mike Johnson and the Republicans. Well, I think that's exactly right, Ian. I think you're on a good story. I would say it's their top fiscal um, you know, priority. I think they they still want to get Donald Trump reelected and they want to rant and rave about the border. But when it comes to dollars and cents, they've really long been opposed to this component of the Inflation Reduction Act. So we go back to 2022 and in that big Biden Inflation Reduction Act bill, as you said, Ian, they allocated both, you know, bipartisan support for that. And they allocated 80 billion dollars to to the IRS. And the IRS budget has been being cut pretty steadily in this entire century, largely by Republicans. But Democrats haven't exactly been heroic when it comes to the IRS funding. So the IRS is using computer codes from the 1950s. The rate at which they were answering their phone uh, had plummeted to 13 percent, one in eight phone calls to the IRS just they, they were the ones that got answered and seven out of eight didn't. And then, of course, this ongoing century long tradition of not aggressively checking the tax gains and antics of, of the wealthiest and, and not reining in the tax cheats. So the IRS gets $80 billion. Half of that is allocated to enforcement. And now we see the Republicans wanting to cut half of that, really going with laser-like focus on the component of this IRS uh, funding that is directing, that is directed at collecting money from wealthy tax cheats, people reporting more than a million dollars of income. That's the target. It shows, as you in the lead-in, Ian. You mentioned a, a new report that they've already having 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 used about 300 million of the dollars, really not having spent very much on increased enforcement. They've collected at least 500 million dollars strictly from very wealthy individuals who were doing some pretty obvious tax cheating. And that's the final straw for the Republicans. The fact that the fact that the money might be effective. The fact that the money might be used to actually get wealthy people to pay taxes and therefore bring in money, 
that's the final straw for the Republicans. And of course, they come in. It's the sort of delicious irony in it. Their argument is fiscal responsibility. If we're going to spend money to help Israel and Ukraine, we have to take money away from the IRS to pay for it. But of course, taking money away from the IRS costs money, which is the point of of your lead in with the $500 million we made. So they don't want to make money that way. They don't want to make money by collecting from tax cheats. They want to make whatever money they have by cutting social security benefits, by raising middle-class taxes. They just tax cheats are a very protected species um, under the Republican uh, congressional leadership in Congress. Well, what does this mean, though, in terms of what seems to me to be just rampant and blatant corruption? And after all, Mike Johnson is this good Christian, so I just don't understand how you could be a good Christian and such a money grubber. But that aside, does this mean that Mike Johnson and the Republicans are going to get payback from these millionaires and billionaires who just had to pay, fork out $520 million because they were tax cheats? Are they going to reward the Republicans now by cutting out this enforcement mechanism? Uh, I think nothing new there. I think uh, I think certainly they're going to reward. They have been rewarding. You know, we know that groups, the the Koch brothers, not not to not to say that the Koch brothers are tax cheats themselves, but the Koch brothers, Sheldon Adelson. Other other very wealthy Republican billionaires have always been focused on on tax policy and have always been opposed to the IRS enforcement. Uh, the wealthiest of them, uh, you know, the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezoses of the world, they found perfectly legal ways to avoid paying taxes. And you and I, Ian, have talked about that and. I've coined the phrase buy, borrow, die for how they do it. So we're sort of looking at a lower level of tax cheats. We're not looking at the hyper billionaire class. We're, we're looking at sort of the millionaire class, lots of small businesses, people running their businesses and maybe not writing down all those expenses. So it's a more diffuse group than just the Koch brothers, but absolutely. Uh, we know that when there is tax legislation, anything having to do with the IRS, campaign contributions go up. Uh, Congress is is not unhappy with that. So the idea that, that you know, I, I mean, on the Democratic side, we're telling the story, like Republicans are crazily obsessed with gutting the IRS budget and making it difficult, if not impossible, for the IRS to rein in tax cheats. Well, on the other side of the aisle, Chuck Schumer agreed to this pretty quickly. And when when the Democrats want something uh, and and they can get it in exchange for tax breaks for the rich, they don't they don't kick and scream too much. They're, they're really they're really very few heroes in the story. There are very few people doing what you're doing in this background briefing, you're trying to educate the people that we have to wake up and watch the watchdogs because the watchdogs are getting paid quite well to do nothing. Um, and you can, you can threaten to do something. You can threaten to spend $80 billion 
and that gives you a number of years to get paid to pull it back. And that's what we're seeing here now uh, without the Democrats being particularly heroic uh, about defending it or without a big public campaign to explain to the American people the mass of it is that we're actually paying money. We're losing revenue because we're unwilling to collect taxes from wealthy tax cheats. That that's the fact of it. And you would think if there was widespread public awareness of that fact, there would be some blowback, but you know, the public is off thinking Joe Biden's too old and, doing whatever the public is doing. And, you know, people in Congress can play games with IRS funding in which they get some of the money that's not being paid to the federal government. Uh, They get a kickback from the wealthy people who are not being audited, not being checked the way lower income people get audited when they, you know, check the wrong box. And the 1950s style computer code can see that the the middle and lower income people have made a mistake and God forbid that endure. But we don't want to spend five minutes looking at the tax returns of millionaires where that five minutes would produce billions and billions of dollars in additional revenue. That's what we're not doing. We're getting paid not to do it. Uh, Democrats aren't objecting too vigorously. And the public is, you know, the public is busy and trying to avoid being audited themselves. So just in closing, then, Ed McCaffrey, Senator Chuck Schumer and his budget deal, or keep the government open deal with, with Mike Johnson, he agreed to this. But of course, he agreed to it because he's got a gun to his head, which is to shut down the government, which is, again, the kind of tactics that the Republicans are using, uh, you know, like standing in a vat of gasoline about to strike a match. So according to IRS data released last year, about a million and a half wealthy Americans owe nearly $66 billion in federal taxes for 2017 through 2020. And the wealthiest 2,000 non-tax filers from that period collectively owe $923 million. So the money's out there for all this talk about, you know, from these Republican deficit hawks. I mean, my God, all of our fiscal problems would go away if we just collected the revenue that's owed. Yeah, and if we had a fair tax system to begin with, that that made it impossible to legally avoid it. No, that's 100% right. I mean, where where there's a will, there would be a way. There are ways we could figure out how to do it. Um, you know, the private sector knows how to collect debts, even from rich people. Uh, so I think the huge problem, and, and you keep pointing it out, is that there is no will. There's no there's no general uprising among the public. Democrats haven't made this any kind of, you know, litmus test where, you know, Biden has already agreed to the $20 billion of, of cutback to the IRS. So, you know, un- until more people pay more attention, um, I-, I don't see any real change to the story, except perhaps in its details. And when the, the Democrats were able to under Biden and in the Inflation Reduction Act, 
when they were able to cobble together enough votes to actually increase. And, and a lot of it, if you go back to a certain baseline, say around 2000, we're not really increasing the IRS budget. We've been cutting it for decades. So we have to spend a bunch of money just to get out of 1950s computer code, which is which is what they're using now. Incredibly antiquated systems and underemployed service desks. And, you know, they're not reading the paper returns at all because they don't have any person to do it. Remember what happened to Trump with the presidential audits, Uh, a mandatory provision, a provision in United States law that the IRS has to audit the president of the United States, has to audit the president and the vice president's tax returns every year. The IRS didn't do that for Donald J. Trump, a sort of known tax cheat, because they said they didn't have the resources. They didn't have the resources to audit the president of the United States, whom they were required to audit, and whom there's plenty of reason to think and suspect might have underpaid his taxes. So that's life. Uh, Republicans, wealthy tax cheats are benefiting from the fact that they have benefactors in Congress and the Republicans and that they're just not popular. There's not a popular uprising against wealthy tax cheats in favor of the IRS because the IRS gets coded as the bad guy. So until that changes, until people start listening to your showy and, <laughs> and, and staying on this beat, right. um, you know, I think it's a story pretty much as old as time, certainly as old as American time, because we've, we've never taxed the, the wealthiest. Well, Ed McCaffrey, I thank you so much for joining us here today. No, it's my pleasure, Ian. Thank you for bringing these topics up to the people. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.